The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Fifty-one plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch, here it is. Swung, fly ball, deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, 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 Twenty-five lighters on my dresser, yes, sir. You know I got to get paid. High five, ball. Back to right center, and the Braves have landed. Twenty-five lighters on my dresser, yes, sir. You know I got to get paid. Swing and drive. Now get ready, this is the Platinum Sombrero Podcast with your hosts, Dylan Short and Adam Doc Herbert. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Platinum Sombrero. Dylan here along with Doc as always. And joining us today, a special guest, somebody I've gotten to know a little bit over the last couple years. 680 zone, Chris Domino. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well, guys. How about you? Can't be any better. It is Acuna Day. Finally. <laughs> Feels like I've been oh, waiting for this for a year on. and a half. Are you sure? I hadn't read. I hadn't heard. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if the press release has been sent out there yet. Yeah, I know. Look, it's there are party favors going off all around the city of Atlanta and maybe even beyond. You've been in Atlanta for a long time. You were here. You got to see Dale Murphy. You saw Chipper come up. You saw Andrew come up. Uh, were you around Glavin when he came up as well? Has there been anybody that's had the same type of fanfare as Acuna? Yeah, oh, hold on. Let's get a couple of things up. I'm old, but I'm not Dale Murphy old. I've been around. <laughs> I didn't mean Murphy coming up. I meant Murphy at his top long. end. I, I have seen all of the other guys. I really look. I saw the uh, the sort of right after the mania of 91 and 92. I moved here in 93, so I got to see the championship, certainly. I didn't get to see the 88, 89, or the uh, you know, mid-80s version that drove everybody crazy with everybody wondering, is this ever going to happen? Are we ever going to win in this city? So I got here at a good time. I missed the hysteria of 91 and 92 and the worst of first, but I had a chance to see a whole bunch of guys come up and a whole bunch of guys certainly uh, build their Hall of Fame resume. So... Uh, at the end of the day, no, in terms of, I knew who Chipper Jones was, you know, drafted obviously before I moved here, but when the number one overall is coming up, it's a big deal. When the number one overall coming up is going to hit third for a team that's gone to the World Series a couple of times, that's a big deal. You know, Klesko and Lopez were in that group as well. Um, you know, Steve Avery, I missed the beginning, and I wish I had seen it, and I think Braves fans wish they had seen it for a longer run. You know, but then I worked my way through that sort of next group, the Baby Braves group, and then it was the Frank Horn McCann group, and then it was the, you know, Freddie Freeman and, and Jason Hayward group. This one is different, and you guys know why, because social media and the bigness of let's talk about guys who've never taken a swing in the major leagues is a thousandfold compared to when I started covering this thing officially in 1993. Therefore, there was no chance this wouldn't be bigger. There are actual websites dedicated to prospect rankings and when you have one of those guys and you start to go oh what's going to happen and what's he going to do for me you know two years seems like an eternity but what it really is is it's two plus years of buildup, and that's what it's been with this guy as he makes his debut tonight and it's it's one of those things where doc and i are pretty big into the prospect pool ourselves it's how accessible it is right now is not something that could have really been fathomed because if it had been around People knew Andrew when he was coming up, but but with just comparing some of the numbers, Andrew would have had every bit of fanfare. You talk about, I mean, there, there's plenty of guys that would. It's so much. It's so much easier now to actually see video of these prospects, so it gets guys a lot more hyped. You've got some guys that can really 
break down the swings and can give you a fairly good estimate of if they're going to succeed okay. or not. See, now there's where we disagree because I'm not a prospect guy. I'm aware. My analogy has always been, and I've had guys tell me it's fair. Uh, everything you see above you know, the, the waterline, the tip of the iceberg is up here at the major league level. If it's a 25-man roster, and that really determines whether guys keep their jobs, GMs included, certainly managers, and certainly try to figure out who you need to buy and who you need to trade for. But it's only a part of it. It really is just the tip. I understand what's below the water. The minor leagues and everything else that goes with it, and scouting departments are bigger. And I've known four different guys who've headed up scouting here in Atlanta. I've known guys who've been um, you know, in a lesser position who've gone on to become general managers and assistant general managers. So I've been through a bunch of regimes. I'm not a prospect guy, and, and I'm going to tell you what I think. This is no disrespect to anybody who does it, uh, but I quote it all the time. Whether you like the movie Moneyball or not, whether you believe in the concept of it or not, whether it should be, whatever. There's a line when Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean looks at the guy he's about to fire, who's the head of his scouting, and says, you don't know. I've been in that kitchen when you've told parents. You don't know. I've been in a room when you've told. You don't know. And just because you can see the swing... I don't think it gives anybody other than, oh, wait, at least I've seen the swing. We used to do it, or, or guys used to do it without seeing these guys throw or hit or run. They used to tell me how great they were. There's no way you can actually rank 100 guys as prospects unless you're literally there. Now, unfortunately, I think what you have is YouTube GMs. And I'm not telling you it's not great for the business. There's, there's a cottage industry and then some based on that. But I don't think seeing a 17- or an 18-year-old swing or throw really gives you the indication that people try to tell me it does, whether they're going to have success as 22, 25, or 28-year-olds. I think that one thing it does really do is it lends a lot of hope. You know, when you look at that 2014 team that had Hayward and Upton and Gaddis mm -hmm. and Kimbrell and all of these guys that wound up getting traded for prospects, I think it became fairly obvious when Alberto Cayaspo was the, the starting second baseman on opening day 2015. It's like, well, we can buy into this as hard as we can because that that's what we're going to get. You know, I personally, I've, I have um, some surprisingly good memories of that 2015 team. You know, Cameron Maven and Johnny Gomes yeah. coming into, into pitch and all that. But, you know, meanwhile, we're looking at it's like, oh, who is this Mike Soroka kid that we just drafted? Right. And, and, you know, so it's either, you know. Swim or die, for, for I, lack of a better term. I don't mind the hope, and I'm not banging the hope. I'm not. Look, at the end of the day, if you had bona fide major leaguers who were going to help other teams, you should have gotten prospects back. But I'm also of the belief that if you don't know your own better than anybody else, then you're not a very good system. You're not a very good organization. And, and the one thing I can tell you, and it's not a conversation that's had out loud very often, but I've talked to enough GMs, and I've talked to enough players who've played with guys who could play – who could really play, and they've played with guys who they thought could play and didn't for a number of reasons that never worked out at the major league level. What you're hoping for every time you do a deal is that the other guy picks the wrong guy. I'm, and, and it is the one thing that I don't think is talked about enough in that world. It's Let me tell you something. You hang up a phone, you're looking to high-five somebody because they think they actually got you when it was a guy that you didn't have as much interest, nearly as much interest in, in keeping as he, he had in wanting. And I think that's the one thing, really, when you do, do these deals or when people talk about what was it. At the major league level, you trade arbitration years and you trade contract control and you trade paperwork, unfortunately, now, every bit as much as talent. So that's a fact. But I really love the moments when a GM or somebody tells me, they asked for the wrong guy. We didn't even have to give up what we thought we were going to have to give up. That's a really good day. It doesn't mean it's going to work out exactly right or extremely well for you, but at least it's a good feeling when a deal is done. Everybody says, well, it's a deal that helps both sides. That's okay as a wash. I, I want to win. I want to win a deal, and I think my best chance to win a deal when it comes to prospects is the other guy picks the wrong one. Basically, you want to be like the St. Louis Cardinals and basically never lose a trade. You always come out on top. They're like uh... – Oh, I guess I could compare them to the Patriots in the NFL. They don't ever really lose trades. They always seem to come out yeah. on top. Um, and th you never want to have a depletion of assets either. I understand what they are. They're chips. They're guys who play in, in towns that you and I, are not are, we're not really visiting. We're not really watching the games unless you have online and on your computer you want to watch. 
there's an there's an you know it's a necessity. There's a need to have players. Then the question is, do I have players? Or do I have talent? Do I have major league talent? And I guess my point is, just because you can see a swing, whether it's over in Japan or whether it's down in Venezuela or whether it's in the Dominican Republic, I think a lot of times we just try to say, oh, the swing looks like Vlad Guerrero. Oh, the swing. We never say the swing looks like a guy who's the fifth outfielder. We're always looking for the guy who throws it like a future Hall of Famer or nice. a Hall of Famer or a guy who hits like a guy at that level. And I got to tell you something. Hall of Famers are rare. There just aren't a lot of them. I, it's got to be tempered a little bit when you start to do these comparisons. Yeah, you don't hear a lot of people give the old Peter Borges swing comparison. Uh, right. <laughs> but and I, by the way, there are more Peter Borgeses than there are Hall of Famers. Oh, by far. It's a, it's a much easier comp, but it doesn't get the clicks. Now, there, there's actually there's a lot to be said for what you're talking about there. Uh, I think more than anything, I think you can, you can tell if a guy has the goods to make it pro, but what you can never quantify is can he adjust when he's at the major league level? I've maintained for a long time since I – for probably since I was about 15 or 16 and really that it's not about the talent part about getting to the majors 99.99999 forever percent are talented enough to play big league ball the difference between somebody who sticks in the majors for 12 years and somebody who is one and done or, or burns out after three or four is the ability to make an adjustment. That's why you'll see a lot of rookies come up and tear the cover off early. There's no tape on you yet. Pitchers don't know the quirks of your swing and, and what you're going to go after. And then you get a, a season like Dansby a year ago where they find a hole or like Frank Hoare, where they find a hole and they just hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. And you have to change your approach and not, not as many people can do that. Well, the expression is hard to get here, harder to stay. Uh, you know, and, and I think another aspect, if we're talking about something that's not talked about enough, when people just say, well, you see, I told you that guy could play, or we gave that guy $30 million coming from Cuba, or we got that guy, see Jose Altuve, for $15,000 back in 2006. There are way too many variables for me to actually to claim definitives. The one thing that I don't think, though, on top of you hope, that you know your guys better than anybody else and that the guy on the other side making the deal picks the wrong guy, there's a reason there's 50 rounds of drafts. There's a 50-round draft every year. The reason it's hard to stay is they're looking for your replacement every year. They're looking for the guy who, whether cost-effectiveness comes into play or, um, yeah, the guy that we thought, fourth-round pick, eh, I don't think that one's going to work. we got to go find another one. And they don't just find one. They find five. It's not six rounds of drafts. It's 50. They're looking to find five better than you every year. And that's why, to me, I agree with this. Mentally, the idea of you going to camp for the first time, rookie ball, eight ball, moving your way up, when you look around and you go, there are a lot of guys who are just like me. Most of these guys have never lived in a world where anybody else has been like them, let alone multiples of people. So I think there's a weeding out that comes pretty quickly with the guys who all of a sudden can't handle that. Then the question is, okay, Physically, do they get better? Mentally, are they in a good place and in a position to keep moving up? And, you know, while everybody dreams about being a major leaguer, what does it really take? Well, most guys don't know because you can't write it down. You know, it's not really a list. You don't hand a handbook to people about how to do this. And then, to me, the last thing is what you just talked about. I'm here. How do I stay? Well, one of the ways that I stay is that I just make sure that I'm never going to be outworked. And not just physically. I'm never going to be outworked mentally you know, to try to make the game as simple as it possibly can be. Yeah, there's, it is definitely, it's a sport like no other. And it's one of the reasons why people will, will, will talk about how, oh, baseball's falling off the popularity scale. Kids aren't as interested. It's a lot harder to get to it. Yeah, it looks nicer when you can get drafted out of high school and get the big money contract, but not everybody is Mike Trout or Bryce Harper and, you know, automatically getting those, those monster contracts. The NFL and the NBA, you know, you can draft people right away. They're going to contribute major contributors year one. The last one I can remember is the Braves' own Bob Horner, somebody who got who came out of the draft and went straight to the big league team. I don't know that I know another one that's done that, and that is simply something that would never, ever happen in today's age. Well, he put his foot down. He said that's what he also wanted to have happen. So, you know, I'm not telling you he wasn't, I guess, good enough, but it was an interesting I'm sure, conversation behind closed doors as to why it happened that way. You know, the other thing about this kid coming up now at 20 years old, I, I think the, you know, it's a conversation I've had with some 
some players and guys who are 27 and 28, I look around and go, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older than, than I'm supposed to be in a major league room. Well, whether it's good or bad, the Trouts and the Harpers and the guys who've had success really young, uh, I think they put a burden and a pressure on Dansby Swanson, who's only 24, Ronald Acuna, who's 20, because everybody says, well, look, they exist. Why don't I have one? Because those guys are freaks. Right. They're just freaks. Right. Not everybody can be worth two war a month into the season like Mike Trout. You're not, yeah, they're freaks. And and I do think, I, I won't name any names, but I know a couple of guys in Philadelphia who I spoke to about Hoskins and what they have going on over there with a couple of young guys. You know, the nervousness is that, you know, people in Philadelphia, while they know it's a rebuild, they hope that these guys realize that when they get it kicked, I mean, when they get their ass kicked, it's going to get kicked like it's ever been kicked. When they hear a boo or they hear a, what's going on with this guy, why isn't he? They just hope that these guys are prepared for that moment. And and how crazy is that? That you're asking 21 and 22-year-olds to you know, be immune to the idea that you're not going to have success for an extended period of time in the majors. Not in the minors, in the majors. Not in college, in the major leagues. And that is because I just think the the success stories, the freak success stories, are just the ones that fans look around and go, well, if they have one, why don't I? Well, because, they're, you know, you can't count them. I don't think I would need a third hand to count the guys that I would say at 21 and 22. But not only going to know their ass from their elbow as they make their way around the game, but are actually going to go out and compete and succeed at anything close to this level. This particular team, you know, you were just talking about, you know, Dansby's 24, Acuna's 20, Albies is 21 One. now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is just and, – and you've got Mike Soroka. I know you said that you're not a huge pro, uh, prospect guy, but Soroka's knocking on the door. You have all of these young guys. Soroka and Allard are still 20. Um, it, it's just amazing to see, like, this This is what we've been waiting for, for the rebuild. Right. And even though the, the, the line we were all fed was 2017 was going to be the competitive year, even still, the uh, entering contention, doing it with this young of players, it's really kind of amazing to see. And just any level of success with guys that are barely able to drink or not even able to drink in some of these cases, I mean, this is why you rebuild. The, yeah. the level of excitement just outpaces even even the winning. You know, just that, that buzz. Right. So the individual thing of why isn't my guy as good as that guy? Now the next part is, well, the Cubs did it. The Royals did it. The Royals took 10 years. Nobody wants to hear that. But the Cubs and the Astros have now set it up where a team has to answer, why is my rebuild not working quite to the level of those guys? Well, again, there's a number of reasons. Those Cubs guys had a really good mix of not only young talent, but bringing in a couple of veteran guys. Astros did the same thing with them. Cannon and Beltran. You know, David Ross's story is known. Uh, in Kansas City, I think it was a bunch of guys who had played together for a number of years and all of a sudden figured it out. Well, we don't have to hit home runs because we can't. So let's actually figure out how we work our bullpen. Let's figure out what we need our starters to do. So it's a, it's a whole lot of and, – and it really is a World Series or bust thing. You know, if you told me that the Braves are in the playoffs next year but get beat in the first round or beat in a wild card team, people are going to walk around and say, well, what the hell happened? I thought we were going to be better than this. Well, there's an impatience and there's a – to some degree, an, an, a non-reality of what it takes to actually win enough games to get to October and then win in October. Uh, I like the idea that expectations should be higher. I'm tired of watching a team not win enough games. I'm just saying, though, that uh, the expectation and the reality based upon the last couple of few World Series winners has elevated or moved the bar to a place that way too many organizations think or fan bases think that we can do this. It is. It is a definite. It's a more of a tightrope that teams have to walk now because everybody is so impatient in this day and age. You really don't. I don't think anybody's going to have the ten years, for instance, that the Royals had to rebuild. Oh no! And I think it, oh, it helps. No. It helps that it was Kansas City, in that while their fan base has gotten better, they're not a particularly. How can I say this without being insulting? They're not. They're not in the tier one or even a tier two fan base, I would say. They might be in that tier two now that they've won a World Series and they were good for a couple years. But before that, they were they were like right around there with Oakland, for instance. Uh, well, what, see what you're again, we're talking in code. You're saying that they're not pitchforks and brooms storm the castle and demand that people be thrown out windows. Exactly. Like they, 
it's a good fan base. It's knowledgeable, but it's not some of these other markets where you go 10 years. Look, Theo Epstein, the guy walked in with two World Series rings. What were they saying in Chicago? Did he really mean five years? I thought this guy's a genius. He needed every minute of those five years to put that team in a position to win. Which, by the way, makes no sense coming from any Cubs fan who hadn't won anything of meaning in a hundred and what was it? Well, again, you brought the Wonder Kid in, and and it was when he said five years, people were like, "Oh, it's not really five, is it?" Hell yeah, it's really five. <laughs> Hell yeah, it's five. <laughs> and they still almost didn't win that World Series. They right. were this close to losing right. Cleveland. Right. Yeah. No, I I I just think there's an impatience with young players. I think there's an impatience with organizations. And, and I'm not telling you the expectation or the pressure shouldn't be maybe a little bit more. Look, this is a sleepy-ish media town. I'm going to tell you that we're not a pitchfork and broom, you know, broomstick town. We don't light things on fire and, and, and demand heads that roll. We don't do that. I think, we're, I think we're a little fed up or a little frustrated to the point where maybe the discontent, the discontent is a little bit louder. Um, but, but you're talking about markets where you go, well, hold on. I don't have 10 years. 10 years is half a generation. And I agree with you. You're, you're never going to see a GM get 10 years to build something anymore. Part of the reason why we're kind of uh, we're almost desensitized to it. You know, I, I hate to, to ever discuss the Atlanta sports curse. But anymore, you just kind of see something like that happening. Like, I, I don't even get mad when, when bad sports things happen anymore. I just say, well, that's just kind of how it works yeah. around here sometimes. Yeah. But you couple that with with the hype machine, like in the NFL and the NBA, like you guys were saying before, guys will step in and contribute immediately. Right. And it's su- such a crapshoot with all the attrition of prospects and everything. But you also have injuries. That, oh, oh, most definitely. But you also see guys that are like, you know, there's hype around guys when they get drafted, and then when they get promoted to to the to each subsequent level, it's like you can track these guys for years yeah. and years and years. You don't have to. You don't have to do that in the NFL. You know, when somebody gets called up from the D League in the NBA, it's never like, oh my God, we're getting yeah. so no, you're right from from which you're right. There's and, no, we never asked that guy about that phone call. What was that phone call like? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's that, just happy is, not to be in a Motel Six. That's a baseball thing. I've asked that question about 500 guys. What was it like? Because we know that there's a time element to it. There's there's no time element in the NFL. There's really not often a time element in the NBA. Now, I know the guy from the Lakers at 32 years old made his rookie appearance, and he was the front story on ESPN Sports Center. Why is that? Because he was such the exception that it becomes the biggest story when he has a really big night as a 32-year-old rookie. But, yeah, in baseball, we ask those guys, you know, it used to be more around the 26-27. What was that phone call like? What the hell did you do? You know, some guys would drive right to wherever it was they were actually going to play most times they weren't in the lineup even the first night we get guys called up and we actually see them hitting fifth i mean that's the difference in the game today as well it is everybody right now everything is so close when you talk about the analytics involved and i'm gonna i'm gonna hang a guess and say that you are much more along the feel and intuition side of the spectrum as opposed to the uh gabe kapler analytics side of the field Uh, i don't (laughs) mind information but i do find it ridiculous that as we speak Somebody is sitting in a room trying to come up with the next number so they could say, look at me, I came up with that number. And I'm a believer in, you know, it's an old adage, garbage in, garbage out. You can tell me, you know, they're using stat cast and they're trying to figure out, well, what's a good jump on a ball? Well, I don't know. How long have you been doing it? What's your, how much information do you really have? Is there a thing, you know, is there a difference between slow and fast? Yeah. Is there a difference? Look, the minute I got bummed about all of that stuff was when I kept hearing there's no such thing as a clutch factor. That's absurd. I mean, I admit it. I turned off. If you're not going to tell me that guys are created equally, you know, if you're going to tell me that guys aren't created uh, equally, what you have to start with is some guys want the moment more. You've heard me. You know, I've said that until you measure heart rate or until you measure pulse rate, shortstop in the eighth inning, does he want it hit to him? A guy coming out of the bullpen, a guy stepping into the batter's box. It's the one thing that nobody has done yet. And and anybody who told me there's no such thing as clutch or there's no such thing as that being a factor, I shut off for three years. I didn't listen to anything anybody said. So because if you're going to go with that premise, you're now telling me that the game is not played by individuals. And individuals, to me, are the ones that do you step up or do you not? And it doesn't mean you do it every time, but I know you're capable of it. Or you find over time, 
that guy might not be the guy you want to hit to. That guy might not be the guy you want up in this situation. And when I started to hear analytics people tell me, well, no, 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 these things are all measurable. No, they're not, unless you look at it and have a pool to, to pick from. Yeah, as as somebody who played a, a, a decent amount, not anything major, but but played f- fairly high up, uh, I have a real problem with people saying that there is no clutch. That that it's, uh, it's the same thing with when they say that it's the runners in scoring position that RBIs are just a factor of who's hitting in front of you. There is some truth to that, but it does not tell the full story of a player. Much like a clutch factor, you have no nothing else but to see the look on Camargo's face last night as. In his final at bat, he did not. He he came up mean mugging for one simple reason. He wanted to be up in that particular instance. You talk about the legends that you get, like your Jackie Robinsons. And as much as I may not ag- ag- agree with some of the superlatives thrown at him, Derek Jeter for for being Mister October and all of that, uh, and being the captain. They, these are real definable moments. John Smoltz in the playoffs. Yeah. You can't ever look and say that John Smoltz. As as much as I love Smoltzy and I love Smoltz a lot, there's. There are not many many players that I could say could win 100 or 250 games and save 150 or win 200 and save 150 or basically be like that. But he was not at the same level pitching-wise as Greg Maddox, I will say. And I'm not saying that to be mean to John Smoltz. It's just Greg Maddox is, without a doubt, the best pure pitcher of my entire generation. But when it came to a crunch time game or a playoff game with something was on the line – John Smoltz is the guy you want on the mound. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the other part now is, you know, defensive analytics and where you move a guy. Uh, I'm not telling you it was better in the old day, and I'm not a get-off-my-lawn guy, and I'm not everything was better 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago, but I thought there was sort of an instinct that came to the game. Where does the center fielder move? Is he two steps over? Is he two steps back? Uh, Same with my shortstop and my second baseman. I think sometimes there's a – you know, the book is a little bit too heavy that you want to hand these guys and say, here's what we're going to do. I've seen it. Is it bad? I, I don't know. Maybe it's not bad. Maybe it's not great. I've seen guys take cards out of their hats. I've seen guys with things on their wrists. And again, I'm all for information. My question has always been, is the information you're inputting really good information? Because if you don't have good information going in, you just can't get good information coming out. And And the one other thing that I do know when it comes to uh, you know, whether it's scouting reports as a hitter or defensive analytics as to where I want to position guys, if you have pitchers who can't throw to whatever shift or can't throw, and a lot of them can't, you know, if you can't throw to what it is you're asking a guy to do, therefore we're moving guys to, to play these positions, you know, whether it's three guys on the right side or the outfield is moving over two ways here and then the left fielder actually moves close to the line against a, a left-handed batter. Whatever it is, if you have to pitch to that, I get a little nervous. It's too, it's too general a statement for me to say that here's what should happen. We should move these guys around, and therefore our pitcher will, will be the end piece of this, and they'll throw the baseball where we're asking. I, I, I don't think enough guys can actually do that to warrant at times what it is people are telling me that, that they are telling me with all these shifts and all the movement. I actually think that the whole shift movement is actually more – more to do with the movement among hitters where it's no longer, oh, hit the ball the other way, just put it in play. Everybody is selling out for power and to maximize your power potential and to maximize your overall value when you come into the, oh, it's okay to strike out. The days of Tony Gwynn striking out 30 times in a season is not ever happening again. Nobody's well, going to do that. So, yeah, so don't go to Tony Gwynn because if you put a shift on Tony Gwynn, he'll laugh as he's slapping doubles all over God's green earth. Exactly. So he's the exception. <laughs> Bob's is the exception. But I think there are, look, I agree with this part. A.J. Ellis, and Dylan, you probably heard me say this. Doc, two years ago, uh, A.J. Ellis, the catcher, we were talking about, uh, it was two years ago we talked about approach and why strikeouts were up. And I've always said the catcher's got the best position to try to tell the world as to what might be going on with hitters. It's not even pitchers, it's catchers. So A.J. Ellis, two years ago, about, um, strikeouts and why they don't matter and and how can a catcher and a pitcher take advantage of that then the launch angle thing came into play and it was josh donaldson and turner and all these guys talking about that aj ellis was the first one to tell me look chris here's what's going to happen we're going to go high heat and we're going to go 12-6 curveball then he said now let me explain something he remembered our conversation from the year before and i use this line whenever i can he said let me tell you what happened he'd been around long enough 
He said it used to be in the major leagues, two for me, one for you. And he's talking about swings. I get two for me and I get one for the team. He said, Chris, it's three for me. That's the world we play in now. There's no one for anybody. It's three for me. And that's why if somebody will show you data that says, well, this guy, all he does is pull the ball. He might just pull the ball probably because he doesn't take swings for the team anymore. Doesn't care about protection. I'm not even talking about choking up. Doesn't care about, you know, protecting himself. He's just in it to hack. And, and I, it's why some of the data I'll accept if a guy is what he is, but really it's, it's a recent phenomenon because when you don't take a swing for the team, now all of a sudden I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to win that battle individually instead of thinking about it as a team thing. And, and I, I thought Ellis, look again, it's why catchers probably make the best managers. It's, it's they not only see the game, but I think they think about the game a little bit ahead of the curve. I was going to say that exact same thing, uh, that catchers are the best managers. And what it boils down to, because we're going to move off move off this in a, just yeah. a second, but what it does boil down to is when I'm looking at the analytics, I like a lot of the analytics. I like the way it runs created plus. I love the slugging. I like the OBP. I love the WABA. I think WABA is probably your better hitting stat. To me, when you're getting so bogged down in analytics, analytics is a, a full season look. It tells you trends and what averages out to be. It is not meant to be used in a singular instance, which is how you get into trouble like Gabe Kapler did in his first time up. I don't think that they should necessarily work apart. I think the analytics should reinforce what your gut is telling you. If it doesn't, then you break it down and look again and see, is this person an exception to said rule or is there something in this player that I'm not particularly seeing? Yeah. Well, Doc, I'll give you one more. I think the other thing that I've noticed in 25 years of covering I think managers back in the day, you know, whether they did it out loud or not, would tell media guys or act like, you know, bump you. I don't really much care what you think. You know, <laughs> I did this because I wanted to do it. What it is now is it's the I can show you paperwork. And I think managers have gotten defensive about it. Well, I made the move because that's what the book said. You know, that's the other thing that sort of bothers me a little bit. I don't mind young managers. I, some of my best conversations in the last 10 years have been with young guys talking about lineup construction and other things. But I do think they have an out. And the out is I went to that guy in the bullpen or I used this guy as a pinch hitter or I took my starter out because here, it said to do it right here. That's the part of the game that I don't like as much. I'd rather get into a nice conversation that could get even a little bit heated with a guy instead of just having an end with, well, the book said so. And because there's nothing beyond the book said so. You just, you just walk away at that point because you can't argue with the piece of paper that the guy has in his hand anymore. I just I think that it's such a kind of newfangled newfangled thing. Like all these statistics, like every year there there's something new that's coming out right. for, how, for how you influence everything. Yep. And and you see too many people that are. And Dylan, I know you said we were, we were going to move on from this, but I just want to get this one last point in. Like when you look at certain stats, you have some people that will say this is the end all be all stat, and they're not evaluating it in tandem with anything else. Like if you look at um, bad batting average on balls in play. And you, you, you look at certain, uh, certain high BABIPs and you say, well, this is unsustainable. This guy's not going to be able to keep it up. Right. But a 400 BABIP for a guy that's got a lot of line drives, a lot of really high exit velocity, then that, that tells you it might be a little more sustainable than mm-hmm. otherwise. So, I mean, you, you know, this one guy who's just hitting numbers over all, off the corner, soft contact all day long. So, I, I don't know. I think that in the next five ten years you're going to start to see a little bit more what the the results are going to be different as guys get a little more familiar with Mm -hmm. trying to to use all of these to influence the game i think personally i think that having four outfielders at once or having literally no one on the left side of the diamond (laughs) is kind of ridiculous you might be overdoing it a little bit but you know that's why i never made a pro i think you're being nice (laughs) i think it's completely stupid (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you do what you got to do to to get it out, but I mean, at what point are you just well? At that point, Gallows up everyone's to the right of second base. I mean, at that point, no one likes to bunt, but at that point, if you don't bunt as the hitter, then you deserve to get the out. Yeah, nobody. Oh, I don't want my power hitter to bunt. I get well, that too. Just remember, the Cubs and Astros winning the World Series will tell you that um, every it's a copycat world. How did they do it? You know, whether it's tanking plus those things, that's going to be the norm at least for the. I don't want to say how short the short term short term is, 
but that's going to be the norm for the short term. Until somebody does it differently. Now, we do or, have... Or until a, a manager and a GM get fired because they were over-analytical. Exactly. Now, we do have our, our... We talked a little bit about Acuna coming up, and we are recording this on a Wednesday, by the way. So we are recording this on Acuna's first debut game. Uh, and now, we talked about you don't really get into the whole prospect pool. So I'm actually just going to ask this for, for one simple reason. Without putting too sure. much crazy pressure on him, uh, because oh. people seem to forget that Mike Trout got sent back down. Uh, before he became Mike Trout, he hit 190, got sent back down. Um, what would you say if I were to tell you that Acuna would have the same type of year of Will Myers as a rookie? Hit 280, mm-hmm. hit 13 homers, uh, hit right around 24, 25 doubles, and drive in 65 to 75 runs, and probably steal you 20 bases. Is that are you? Do you think that people are going to see that as disappointment, or are you going to see that that is an actual that's a good season for a rookie? Uh, how many games does he help you win? Is can that at least be part of the the equation as well? Because uh, you know hollow numbers. If a guy hits twenty four home runs, and all of a sudden you look up and you go, a lot of solo shots, a lot of eight one kind of scores. Um, I I'd like to, I, I'll take those numbers if you tell me that this guy hits two eighty fifteen bombs. 70 ribs because he's hitting fifth or sixth. I don't want to make it less than that. 70 ribs for the rest of the way. Then I'm going to tell you the guy had a good year. And if he stays healthy and if he minds his P's and Q's and everybody says, look, he's got a work ethic, that'll be fine. The extra part for me will be, were there memorable moments? I don't mean bottom of the ninth three-run homers. I mean moments where you go, oh, you know what? That stolen base, that was a 3-3 game. He put himself at second base and he scored by going hard on a single. If I get those things plus those numbers... I got no problem. I got no problem for a 20-year-old if he starts throwing those things out. Helping me win games is going to be as big a thing for me as probably the numbers. And it it gets a little bit difficult to quantify that because when you get into war, which is the wins above replacement, there are three major sites that that baseball stat guys use. All three have their own different calculations for it. So it just kind of shows you it's almost like defensive metrics, which people can tell you all day long about it, but defensive metrics are some of the most – uh, they they are like the most unreliable right now. It's They're, eyeball. Let me ask right. you guys something. You guys you guys watch a lot of baseball. Do you think at the end of 120 games you're going to know if that guy helped you win games or not? Uh, yes, you are. You I don't better, need yeah. any paper. I don't need to. St- I don't even need the statistics. We're just going with what might be a slash line at the end, and that's fine. Those what you gave me, but I think 120 games is enough to try to figure out. And we can all sit back and go, hey, it's not remember that May second game. It's not really that, although. Maybe something really memorable happens. But I think it's more about that guy gave me a better chance to win because he was in my lineup. And whether it's busting a hump, whether it's making a catch, whether it's, you know, who, who knows, maybe it's working a walk that you go, 20-year-old's not really supposed to be able to do that. Those are the things that I think at the end of the year are going to be just as important to me as the statistics. One of the biggest things for Acuna that I think is really going to do is I think – like even off the field, well, on the field, he's going to give you swagger, which is like the, uh, yeah. you know, it's one of the intangibles, but also mm-hmm. he's going to bring a lot of people down to SunTrust. He's going to put a lot of butts in the seats, yeah. a lot of revenue. So with, there's been so much talk about free agents for, for this coming season, now, whether the Braves are going to go after Bryce Harper or not. I mean, it may not be as far fetched as some might have you believe, but it's probably not going to happen. But at the same time, the more revenue that gets generated, the more you can really start looking at have the the realistic possibility of bringing in, uh, you know, bringing back Craig Kimbrell, bringing in Andrew yeah. Miller, uh, or if you want to go for one of the big boys, Machado or Donaldson. So, I mean, even like you said, 280, 15, uh, 15 home runs, driving in 70, stealing 30 bases, 20 bases, playing great defense in the outfield. I mean, and just being exciting to watch. That's half of, half of what people are going to so pay for anyway. We, we know what he's getting paid this year. He's going to get paid the percentage of the minimum for the amount of time that he's up in the majors. Here's the other measure, and I'm glad you brought up because I've always said, and Dylan, you've heard me, uh, I more care about uh, playing above pay grade in sports than anything else. This was the expectation. This is what I pay you to do, but you actually play above your pay grade. You know, we've gotten to the point now because contracts have gotten ridiculous where it's harder to play above your pay grade. Once you've been in the league, this guy has an opportunity. I'm going to tell you this. I think he could actually pay for himself this year. Like literally pay for himself. If he's a good player and this team starts to win and people want to see him, he's going to pay for himself. You're not even, you're not even paying for him this year with all the other intangibles and the ancillary, you know, income that could come in. 
that's another win because I agree with you. If he becomes good enough where somebody could say he's a free agent, well, I get to play with that guy and that guy and that guy. And if I got three or four of those and God willing, an arm or two to go along with that, I do think it's easier. Money's going to rule the day. You know, nobody's going to say, well, look, I want to play with Ronald Acuna and Freddie Freeman. You know, that extra six million a year, the hell with it. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> we are ta- we are talking about somebody being able to look and go, oh, there, I can I can ride with that team and still have my chance to win a championship along with getting paid, which is again that there there's a there's an actual value to making a team so much better that you can actually get into rooms that you might not have gotten into. Now you've had a chance to talk with Alex Anthopoulos a couple of times, mm-hmm. so I'm going to continue on this free agency course. The Bryce Harper one is interesting, but when you're talking about four hundred million dollar deal, there's only two players in the game that I think would live up to would that you could even say is, is even an equal value on that deal, and that's Mike Trout and Clayton Kershaw. Outside of those two, and those two only, I don't think anybody is really going to get that deal and say, okay, yeah, it was a good deal for both sides. Now it's going to take what it takes to get Bryce Harper, but I I won't be shocked if the Braves go after him. What I wanted to know is. I hear a lot of, oh, you can't get so-and-so because you've got so-and-so waiting in the wings and you'll block him. To me, that's the stupidest concept in any sort of baseball room. If a guy is good enough, he'll play himself into a position. It's better to have a problem of too many good players than bad. Do you see the Braves going after Donaldson? Uh, uh, I don't think so. No, I, I, I don't. I think the Riley thing is really interesting. And I think, again, he's the reason you could afford maybe the next guy up or two guys who, look, you know, again, I've said it, the Jason Hayward deal has changed a lot because if you have an agent that says, well, my guy's better than Jason Hayward, he got over $180 million. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. Two guys who had 38 home runs last year in Logan Morrison and uh, Hosmer got six and a half million one-year deals. Don't do the Jason Hayward deal anymore because you can't make the comparison. Do, do I think Donaldson? No, I, I, I wouldn't do it. I understand why you'd be tempted. But if, if Austin Riley plays well enough this year where I think that I've got a guy that I don't have to pay with talent who probably, God willing, because he's younger, is not going to have the injury situation, it affords me the opportunity to go buy a starter and maybe contribute to another position that I need to buy into. Maybe make the run at Andrew Miller, which I, I actually think if you're circling free agent wish lists, I think a guy like Andrew Miller or Craig Kimbrell, but really Andrew Miller is probably the the number one biggest need because, as you mentioned, Riley can do some things. Uh, I've been a little bit low on him. I've started to come around on him. I've been waiting for him to put kind of a full season's worth together, but there's no denying what he's doing. Uh, you look at this Braves team, there's not an awful lot of holes. You've got 5,000 starters that you're hopefully going to start weeding some out this year yeah. and start seeing who's for real and who's not. Uh, and by the way, the starting pitching market in this free agency class, not all that great. Kershaw yeah. can opt so, out, but he's not leaving L.A. So here's the one thing that I've said about young guys. Like, I have not made declarations. This guy is this guy, and this guy's ceiling. I don't know enough. The one guy that I went out on, and I, I mean, I really went out with Gohara. Now, I looked at Gohara throw, and I said, you know, I know the body thing is going to be certainly a topic of conversation. I don't like the fact that running in the outfield could hurt him. I don't like the fact that getting off the mound, he could roll his own ankle. I don't like that stuff. But from a pitching point of view, he's the guy that I've said in the last six or seven years, and I kept hearing all these names, I think he's got the best shot to actually be a consistent winner. I've never gone out because I don't claim to know enough. This is 100% true. injury situation, don't go down this road with pitchers. But I think he's the one. That could actually be, if he's not a bona fide one because he's not a big strikeout guy or he doesn't look the part, this guy for no money for the next three or four or five years, God willing healthy, I, I think he could be he, he could be last man standing when it comes to all these comparisons about the guys who were supposed to be better than him. Well, me and Doc were both really high on Gohar when we got him as well. My first baseball article I wrote uh, detailing the the pitching depth in, in the system, Gohara was the one that I put as the highest potential arm. He was, in his admittedly short sample size last year, he was the hardest throwing lefty. He's got a devastating slider. People bag on his changeup and say it wasn't good. Last year was the first year he'd thrown it. So for it only being a one-year changeup, I'm okay with that. Now, obviously, you have to make sure that he gets the CC Sabathia comparison for good and bad. 
You need to make sure it is as close to the good line as possible. But I just thought it was easy. I just thought everything you threw. I don't. I don't have any of those numbers on him. I just looked at him. And I said, "This guy makes it look easy. He throws easy. His motion is easy. And he's he a, doesn't look like short of maybe waist down. You know, I got to worry about leg stuff because running doesn't seem to be a thing for him. <laughs> he can and walk maybe everywhere. Seem ver- yeah, he doesn't seem very good at it. I, I told Alex Antopoulos in spring, stop making that guy do drills." Get him the cart. Let him just ride the cart off the mound. Now, he's actually a high strikeout guy and a low walk guy. That's the thing. He came up his first start, and he walked a bunch of people, and people assumed that's just who he was because he throws really hard and all that. But really, he averaged under three walks per nine in his minor league career. He's not a a traditionally a high walk type of guy. The problem with him had always been stamina and conditioning, and that's, that's the big key. Well, he's got to prove that actually he understands that being in the major leagues is better than not being in the major leagues and just get it together enough. I'm not telling you he's got to be Willie the Wisp. I'm not looking to put him on the beach. Uh, <laughs> he's just got to prove that he understands enough how to keep himself standing. You know, we like to say if he's standing, he's starting. That's what he looks like. Now, I'll agree with you that he's uh, that he's got a chance to be a legit number one. It's it's. And it always comes with a caveat if it is if you know he can take care of his body, right? But but he he and Acuna both started in High A last year, and and he you know it took him four months to make it from the Fire Frogs all the way up to the Big Braves. Right. So, and if if he comes back, he's in his rehab assignment now, and then Soroka and who knows if Julio is going to be. I mean, there this rotation if it if it shakes out, I I don't see how this team doesn't start winning. Yeah, like. Really, sooner. really soon. Yeah, sooner. sooner. I agree. Sooner. A chance to walk out on the mound uh, and say, I have a shot tonight. Look, the Reds games for the last two nights will tell you it's on paper. They had nobody was slugging higher than, you know, 370 last night. Literally in their lineup, nobody was slugging higher than 370. They put up nine runs. So I every time they say play ball, I rip up all the information. I say now it's going to be a baseball game. But I like the idea that if I think I have three, God willing, four pitchers, who I think give me an advantage before they say play ball, I'm in a much better place than this team has been in for a number of years now. Basically, you start looking at yourself like you hope that you have the Mets rotation and the Nationals lineup if everything falls according to plan, which they never do. But you keep stockpiling enough, and you hope that you hit on a couple. Now, we're going to hit on one more topic before we get into our questions questions. We haven't talked about him yet, and I want to get your take on it because I will guarantee I'm one of the lowest in Braves country about this. What's your take on the whole Jose Bautista thing? Uh, you know, so let's do the financial part. million dollars, it's relatively speaking nothing, and you don't even owe it to him unless he comes up. I get what they're trying. Let's go get a guy for a million dollars who can still hit home runs at a major league level. He's got something to prove. He's in really good shape. That's the one I'm a little tired of more than anything. He's hearing about what great shape he's in. I don't really much care about that. I, I guess it's better than being a fatty, uh, but I don't want to hear about what great shape he's in anymore. I, I have less of a problem because Austin Riley is not ready now. I'd like more answers on Camargo instead of questions when all is said and done, so I'm not keen on him getting really third-base appearances that are excessive. You want to tell me he's a bat off the bench? I'll take him until he proves he can't do that. You know, is he, is he Ryan Howard or is he not Ryan Howard? Is he, <laughs> is he here? Can he do the job or can he not? I don't want him taking away all the at-bats from Camargo because I need to know what I have in Camargo, whether it's a trade chip, if he plays well. Jose Batista can't be traded unless an American League team wants him, like the Matt Adams thing last year. Maybe you can get something out of that in a trade. Maybe you can't. Camargo, to me, could be tradable. You know, if Riley is going to be the third baseman, Camargo becomes – piece and he plays well enough you could actually get something back for him i don't see bautista being that guy i don't want him stealing so many at bats i don't have answers on camargo and we don't find out if camargo a could play or b somebody else would want him what about you doc i don't i don't hate it you know the no there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal there's no such thing as a bad uh minor league deal but it, it just it says to me a couple things it says uh, Anthopoulos and friends are are not sold on Camargo as a third base option, even even as a placeholder for Riley or or whoever. Um, it tells me that they know that Ryan Flaherty is already starting to crash back to earth, and when he gets there, you know his BABIP was four fifty last week, four oh eight now, um, and 
And then it also tells me that uh, Rio Ruiz is going to be playing for the Pirates <laughs> next year or something. I mean, he didn't, yeah. he's gone. Yeah. He's, so. he's, he seems to be out of the equation. I'm out. I agree with that. And it's it's weird to see like how many different guys that I'm looking at now that were kind of holdovers from the copy era or even the Ren era and going, yeah, there's no way this guy sees the light of day. Like Jason Hirsch and Braxton Davidson and all those, they'll all be gone. But uh, to the point, I mean, I don't, I don't hate, I don't hate the fact that that Batista signed. I think it's kind of counterintuitive that uh, the first thing was we got to get rid of Matt Kemp because you know he's an anvil playing left field, and you know we need to shore up the defense. And now we're we're gonna start Jose Batista, who hasn't regularly started at third base since like twenty was like twenty fourteen. Twelve games since twenty twelve. Yeah, I mean, and he's thirty seven. Maybe he's got range that nobody knew about. Who knows? I mean, he he might get he's up drank from the fountain of youth. To be fair to Bautista, he was a good defender at third base when he was in the Pirates organization. It's actually the only reason he had a major league job because he couldn't hit. I am not like you said, Chris. As a bench bat, I would have been completely fine with Bautista because, and this is one of those where where the numbers do kind of tell a story. He struggles with three pitches out of the normal five. The ones he struggles with to a tune of being like negative double digits are fastball sliders and cutters. All of these faster pitches, which generally happens when you start to slow down as you get older and you can no longer hit. You can no longer swing as quite as quick as you could, or you can't react as fast as you could to me. That is not somebody you want in your lineup every day, especially a guy that's not used to playing third. And like you said about Camargo, I, I think Camargo has, I think he has more power than he's shown thus far. Uh, he he had more in the off season leagues, which you know it's, it's easier than it is. I'm not saying he's gonna be a 20 home run guy, but I right. think I think, and I've called him Martin Prado 2.0 from the time that I really got a good look at him. And and one of my best friends is the replay guy down at Gwinnett. So I've been seeing a lot about Camargo for the last couple years now. You talk about a guy that can play all over the infield. He's ba- he's your super utility type of guy, and you could trade that as well. But that's a guy that I would be loath to get rid of if he can really spell third base, shortstop, yeah. second base, and play the outfield. Mm-hmm. Unless he plays well enough where he has real trade value. I will agree. I just i I'm still a little. Mi- I always like having a guy that is basically four positions, so you don't get stuck with a Borges and a Culberson yeah. coming off the bench. Well, look, you don't win without that guy. You know, in any sport, you don't win without the guy that you go. You see what that guy did tonight? There, he's a he could be. You know, Ben Zobrist for a while it was okay. You know, I, I mentioned grinders. Uh, I think the negative connotation of the word grinder is all done. It's it's not negative anymore. That guy's a grinder is actually a good thing. That guy goes out and gives you a chance to win a game because he was able to do whatever it is you asked him to do that night. Yeah, Ben Zobrist can literally play eight positions on the field. He can right. do everything but pitch. And don't forget, when the Cubs got Ben Zobrist, he wasn't being their super utility when they first got him. He was playing second base, and it was Javier Baez that they were trying to train to be versatile, and then it was Ian right. Happ that they were getting versatile because the whole movement towards versatility, it helps and it hurts because it means that these coaches can have a shorter bench, a smaller bench, but that also means that they have nine and ten men bullpens, and then you yeah. get into extra innings and you have nobody to hit for the pitcher. So is uh was Marwin Gonzalez? He was the same kind of Swiss Army knife guy that uh, yeah. the Astros last year that Zobris was. I mean, you would talk about everybody's going to follow the blueprint, and maybe that is what they're yeah. trying to do, do with him. Have him be the the Zobris. Or yeah, that's Gonzalez. fine. Look, I'm telling you, I don't think you win without it. I don't think you win without the. Hey, remember that guy? Oh yeah, here he was tonight. That guy helped us win a game tonight, and it wasn't overly expected. But you know that you have that bullet in the gun. On, on more nights than not, or you have it more nights than a bunch of other teams, I think having one of those guys is, is nothing but a benefit. And I think at the end of the year, especially in October, when that guy knows what his role is and he can get himself ready for whatever the moment is, the pinch hit appearance, uh, there's nothing but a positive in having that guy late in games. Plus, I, I, I just love the way he plays, and that's really what it boils down to. I love his demeanor. I love his attitude. Yeah. I love the way he plays. Moving on now, we will go ahead and get to our final selection here. If you followed, if you followed and listened to us for any length of time, you know this is where we get into some of the uh, some of the sillier questions. Now, I was in control of some of these, so I've got some real questions. So I'm going to start you off with 
Chris, you've done about a thousand interviews with with major league yeah. players and coaches and everybody else around the game. What was your favorite interview? Uh, Ted Williams it took a year and a half to get together. I was told the night before because he was in failing health. And, and I'll tell you, it was the last actual interview that he did. He did something else where somebody asked him three questions, I think, from Sports Illustrated, but it wasn't an audio. It was just, let's get some answers. Uh, so I was nervous about that one, more nervous than the, the night before my wedding because I assumed my wife was going to show up. I wasn't sure if Ted was. <laughs> so that's, but I'm, I'm going to tell you this, though. Um, Tracy Stallard is a guy, he was a pitcher in the, in the late 50s and 60s who was just so homespunny and, and the best storyteller. Uh, the best storyteller I've ever spoken to in baseball was Tracy Stallard. He was just perfect. Uh, he had enough things on his resume that made him worth talking to, and then he took that to a ridiculously high level after that. Did you? I can't remember if you ever did. You ever actually interview Stan Musial, or was that on your bucket list? No, I did. How was that one? I did. Great. The best story about him is he was basically signed as a as a pitcher, and we we spent seven or eight minutes talking about pitching and what he thought he would have been had he not hurt his shoulder. So that was a guy who you want to talk about how the fates and the gods turned it around. Stan usual is not Stan usual unless he gets you know, hurt as a pitcher. And he said, I'm not so sure I would have had enough at-bats to prove to somebody had I not gotten hurt. Had he gotten hurt two or three years later as a pitcher, he's not so sure he would have had enough at-bats to prove that he could have been an everyday player. I mean, that means you got to interview two of probably the top five best hitters of all time. Well, I had Mays and I had Aaron. Uh, I've had both of those guys uh, on a couple of occasions. So yeah, I Duke Snyder. I mean, How do you even pick a favorite I, at that point? Yeah, you know, to me, it was more about the the uh, content, and that's why Stallard is a guy that you know most people have never even heard of. But he told a story about Casey Stangle the first year of the Mets in 1962 that was as good a story as I've ever heard. So you remember kind of those guys, and and it's interesting. It's it's okay and easy to say the Hall of Famers, but there and a guy named Norm Sherry who told a story about Sandy Koufax and. and being around him, you know, sometimes it's the ancillary guys that are the best storytellers. And you've been you've been doing radio forever. So for question number two, this one, I think I know how you're going to answer this, but I, mm-hmm. I, I want our audience to know. Uh, for those that don't know, Chris is on 680. And their their show title changes from Nick and Chris to Domino <laughs> and Cellini to Mernins to whatever. Who knows you better, Nick Cellini or your wife? Or my wife? Uh my my wife um look i spent as much time with nick in the last 20 years as i have probably with my wife and and believe me i'm not proud or it doesn't necessarily make me happy uh, but but i i still think my wife knows like the radio thing every once in a while it's it is a little bit of a show um i don't have to do any of that stuff really around the house and i think since we've had kids probably more than anything in the last 14 years uh we we have a pretty kinetic understanding of of where we are at a given moment in a given day nick and i can do it verbally i think my point is my wife and i don't even have to speak to it i just think we sort of know let's get this done let's go get this your responsibility my responsibility and and the real life stuff i think she still probably does and that's more a mark on the fact that you and Cellini are are almost you guys are a radio couple i would say and i'm saying this as as nice as possible you guys are yeah. you guys have been together longer than than uh you guys were together longer than Mike and Mike I believe. Uh, uh, longer longer than my wife and I. Certainly longer than his wife and him. And you know, we joke, we're like the Muppet guys up in the balcony and uh he's he's, he's the younger brother I never wanted. <laughs> that is a, Now for anybody else that doesn't know, if you've ever heard the show, then you know that Chris is a big time cereal and peanut butter and jelly type of guy. Man after my own heart. So now I've got a serial question for you. Okay. Which Captain Crunch is better? The one with just the berries or the oh, one no, with no, no, no berries no. at it's all? Over. It's over. Nothing in it. Captain Crunch by itself. You start. You, you want to bastardize Captain Crunch, put something in it. It's Captain Crunch, Captain Crunch, <laughs> and nothing. And so you're, you're not even going to recognize the oops all berries? Oh, goodness, Captain no. Crunch? And And look, I don't mind banana in, in certain uh, cereals. You don't put bananas with Captain Crunch either. Oh the no! Captain Crunch stands on its own. It's its own separate entity. Well, that's that's shocking. I'm, I like the berries myself, but whatever. It's it's okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so, if you were going to be a writing utensil, uh, what would you be? 
Uh, oh, I, I think I'm as basic as it gets. I think I'm a 49-cent big pen. Blue or black? Black. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> nice and professional. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to go with like a glitter crayon. No, no, trusty, trusty. It's there every day for you. <laughs> you know, those pens never run out of ink. I don't know if anybody knows that. Like, it's it's amazing. I would have actually made those things run out of ink where you had to keep buying them at 49 cents a pop. It's it's one of the greatest inventions of all time. I've never had a pen run out of ink. Like, I'm sure they do. I've just never had a pen run out of ink. I just lose them before they run out, and it doesn't right. matter because you exactly get them in a packet of 50. Absolutely. Have you ever jumped out of an airplane? Oh, no. No, that's just, that's just, no, why would I do that? As the man said, why am I leaving a perfectly good airplane? <laughs> now, grab, listen, fellas, I'm going to tell you something. You're young. Let me give you a piece of information. People have told you death and taxes. It's, and by the way, I've known people who have gotten out of paying their taxes. I've never known anybody who's beaten gravity. <laughs> That's my, uh, one of my best friends was the, uh, the tow pilot at uh, Scott Ivan Monroe. Mm-hmm. And for my, my wife's birthday a couple years ago, uh, we, we drove out there, her, her, uh, dad came in town and they went and they jumped out of airplanes that my, my buddy was flying and I stayed on the ground and I was relentlessly heckled by everybody that was Doesn't there matter. for, oh, no, I would, I would rather be drawn and quartered. I would rather be, you know, I, I would never, ever jump out of an airplane. So one of the five, good. one of the five dumbest things ever. I tried to do it. My wife would not do it with me. I, listen, I just, listen, listen, what I told you guys again, you're young. One of the five dumbest things ever, jumping out of an airplane with a with a piece of cloth on your back. <laughs> Who's your favorite <laughs> fictional athlete? I'm sorry, one more time. My favorite. Your favorite fictional athlete. I'm going to assume I know who this one is too. Uh oh, good question. Um, I think Billy Chapel. You know, I think everybody sort of wants to go to. I, I think Billy Chapel. I think the whole idea of one more shot. You know, I, I I'm a. And here yeah, I'm a big fan of the concept of. Uh, it's over, and how are we going to end this? And then, sort of walking away with a little bit of dignity. Yeah, I'm. Uh, uh, yeah, Billy Chapel. I'm going to be 100 percent uh, honest. I thought for sure you were going to say Rocky, and that was my fault. <laughs> uh, had I thought about it for another couple of seconds, I, I, I might have. But no, I, I look here. Here's the problem with the Rocky stuff, and as much, and you know how much, <laughs> and you know what I think about that character. I think it's sort of straight into nonsense a couple of few too many times. Right. I think Billy Chappell's cleaner. I just think it's a cleaner character. This is it. This is my background. I've been this good. I'm not this good anymore. And I want to go out or at least have a shot to go out on top. I I like Uh, it. When you, when you talk about Rocky being ridiculous, do you mean like the time that he won the cold war and he got all of Russia to turn against Ivan Drago? Yeah. You might, you might be onto something there. (laughs) Yes. All right, yeah, when, a, when a guy was fighting heavyweight at 180 pounds, I mean, again, that that's sort of different, like not different real. No, Ivan Drago could have crushed Rocky's skull. You in. can't beat Apollo Creed, but you can beat the guy that kills Apollo Creed. Right, right. Billy Chapel much cleaner in that regard, much cleaner, in and out. Now, this one is like our most divisive question total. We've done this for the past three weeks. Right now, we're we're dead set tied at one, one, and one. I don't even know okay. if you've seen this movie. I'm going to hope against hope that you have. Boondock Saints. Uh huh. Good movie. Horrible yeah. movie. Yeah. Oh no no good movie. Yeah. Oh Chris, that's but two listen, to one. Me. No, listen, it's not artistically <laughs> great. It's not. You're not supposed to bring that to, you know, film festivals. You're not supposed to. You know, I, I'm not necessarily looking for overly artistic. I'm looking for what are you going to give me for the next two hours? Um, and I think it fits into the category of two hours later. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm okay with that movie. It's I, have no, great... I, have, I have less than no problem with that movie. Again, I'm not, I'm not making it what it's not. But if you're asking me good, yeah, served its purpose. It's a great revenge. Just shoot them up. Yeah. Blood and gore everywhere I... with some Irish stereotypes thrown in. Well, look, you've heard me say it. The greatest theme in a movie is revenge. Man on Fire uh, is as good as it gets. The Equalizer. Like, I want to know. Uh, I don't know how the bad guy is going to get it, but I know he's going to get it. Let's get to it. And, yeah, that it certainly fits that category. Hell, that's been Liam Neeson's entire career outside of one weird right. Western. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I've uh, Chris, I've been really excited about every answer that you've given. 
until that until, until that one. Yeah, I'm yeah. Fir- I'm firmly planted in Boondock Saints. It's yeah. um, you know, it's like um, he thinks it's as bad as White Chicks. No, no. well, it's as bad okay. as White Chicks too. Yeah, it's as bad as White uh, Chicks too. A little overstep on your part. Uh, I'm sorry, disappointed, <laughs> but but here's another lesson that we learned: life is truly disappointing. It's okay. That's Life all that matters. Truly disappointing. You don't even have to explain it. You agreed with me, and that's all that matters. Six eighty sticking together. As uh, uh, as we're winding, as we're winded down here, uh, Chris, I do have to say thank you so much for joining us. It was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, uh, no I'm problem. glad, glad we were able to get you today, and we got enough time to where we can all watch Acuna start. Yeah. Yes. So let's walk it up and let's find out what happens, and then we'll all gather five, eight, seventeen years from now, and we'll discuss the Ronald Acuna era. What it was, what it wasn't. If we're if we're actually asking him to get ready to uh, to write a speech, if we're asking what the hell ever happened to that guy, uh, the beauty of sports is you can't tell me and I can't tell you what of those scenarios are is going to be the reality of this thing. I I for one can't wait to watch it. Uh, your friend Chipper Jones was kind of the first one around the station that was telling everybody, "Hey, look at Andrew Comps for this guy." Yeah. So it was, it was great. To- I, I told I told. A friend and a future Hall of Fame with a shush, please. <laughs> I did tell him. It was. It's too much. I enjoyed hearing it. It was one of those. The it's one of the only times I've ever been speechless. As you guys can tell, I talk a lot. Um, that was probably one of the few times I've ever not been able to say something. Um, yeah. But I digress, everybody. I, if you're not already listening to them on 680 from nine to noon, you should be. Uh, you can go to 680thefan.com if you miss a show, if or if you're working during the day and catch their podcast version as well. You can find uh, Chris on Twitter. Is it just at Chris Domino, right? It is. I, I much like I use my real name uh, in radio. I've used my real name on Twitter. I've not gone to anything that was fancier, cuter, more memorable. It just sort of is what it is. No alibis with this man, just straight into the point. And if you want some yeah. good baseball commentary and you want to find out some things that you never knew about some of the greatest in the game, make sure you follow him on Twitter. Make sure you listen to him on 680 The Fan. Chris, once again, one more time, thanks for joining us and everybody else out there. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Make sure you're subscribing to us on iTunes, on TuneIn, Stitcher, whole host of other apps. Uh, we're on Spotify as well. Thank you, Doc. Thanks for joining me, buddy. Thank you for joining me, buddy, and I hope everyone listening enjoys Acuna. Happy Acuna Day, everybody. Thanks, bye.